Good morning. Welcome to Prairie New Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. As we've been doing the past few weeks, the kids have gotten better as they recite the Lord's Prayer. Hopefully you're getting better as well. So let's stand together and say the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You can be seated. Last week, we focused on verse 9 of the Lord's Prayer. That phrase, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Followers of Jesus, pray the Lord's Prayer together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We remember that God isn't just my father or your father. He is our father. So even when we pray this prayer in private, we do not truly pray it alone. And when we call God Father, we're reminded that we have been adopted into his family by his grace at the cost of Jesus' broken body and shed blood on the cross. Because our sins are forgiven, we have a kind of closeness and intimacy with God that sin once made impossible. And then when we add that this Father is in heaven, we're reminded that even while we can approach God in prayer as his children, we still pray with a sense of awe, a sense of humility, and even an appropriate fear. And then finally, we long to hallow God's name, to honor it and revere it, not just in the words of our prayers, but in every aspect of our lives. We hallow God's name by living hallowed, honorable, reverent lives. But today we move ahead to verse 10. And that's your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what exactly is God's kingdom anyway? And why do we want it here? How will it arrive? And what is God's will? Why should we want it accomplished? And what does that look like in our lives right now? And finally, what makes heaven so great? Why should we want earth to be more like it? And what do we make of the Bible's teaching that, in one sense, the kingdom of God has already come? And yet, in another sense, we're still praying and waiting for it to arrive. So to answer these questions, we're going to divide Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, into a few separate sections, and then aim to tie them all together at the end. So open up to Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Feel free to follow along both here in the room and on our live stream as well. But before we do any reading, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for... The privilege of prayer. Thank you that people like us can approach your throne with confidence. We can approach you as your children. We are small and and you are great. And yet, as we just talked about with communion, 
You have reconciled us to you. You have bridged the gap of our sin and and our rebellion and adopted us into your family. And Lord, for that, we are grateful. And Lord, remind us today that you are not just our father, but you are our king. And we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would empower us to live like it. Empower us to live as citizens of heaven, even as we live in this fallen world right now. Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, by whom your kingdom has come and by whom your kingdom will come. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We glorify you. We love you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with part one of Matthew chapter six, verse 10, and that is the three words, your kingdom come. Now, you've likely heard that yesterday, President Donald Trump put forth his nominee to fill the Supreme Court seat that was left vacant by the recently deceased Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That nominee is a woman named Amy Coney Barrett, an unashamed Roman Catholic whose openness about her faith has made many people uneasy. Some have specifically referenced comments that she made in a speech to law students At the University of Notre Dame. In that speech, Amy Coney Barrett exhorted graduates not to make their legal careers an end in and of themselves, but as a means to an end that is part of building the kingdom of God, were her words. Now, many who are unfamiliar with the phrase kingdom of God fear that Amy Coney Barrett's faith may compromise her ability to be an impartial Supreme Court justice. Other people worry that all this talk of the kingdom of God sounds a little bit too cult-like for their comfort. And still others fear that Amy Coney Barrett will hijack the platform of the Supreme Court to establish a theocracy where every American is forced to convert to Christianity with a knife at their throat. But talk of God's kingdom is all over the pages of the New Testament. It's nothing new. It's nothing original with her. In a sense, Jesus says that God's kingdom has already arrived in him. We read in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, some of Jesus' earliest words. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Later in his ministry, chapter 11 of the gospel of Luke, verse 20, after Jesus gets into a confrontation with the religious leaders, Jesus says to them, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, which, spoiler alert, it is, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So again, in a sense, Jesus says that God's kingdom has already arrived in him, with him. Jesus also told multiple parables about God's kingdom. In Matthew 13, he compares the kingdom to a mustard seed, something tiny, unassuming, unimpressive, and quite frankly, almost invisible to the naked eye. And yet it eventually grows and expands massively. 
In the same chapter, he compares the kingdom to a hidden treasure or a precious pearl. Something that you will gladly give up everything else you have in order to acquire. He says the kingdom of God is like a man who sows good seed in his field, but the field is then tainted when an enemy mixes in weeds. He says the kingdom is like a fisherman who lets down his net and catches countless fish. Jesus seems to be saying that while it may take some time, eventually the harvest and the weeds will be separated. The good fish and the bad fish will be sorted out. That's how the kingdom works. And then last but not least, as Jesus stands in front of Pilate, bloodied and bruised, with a cross looming in the distance, he declares that he has a kingdom, even if it's not of this world. So Jesus talks about the kingdom a lot. And in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray that it would come. But what exactly is God's kingdom? There are a million things that could be said to answer that question. Countless books have been written about it. But in short, the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign over and in our world. God's rule and reign over and in our world. Theologian J.I. Packer says this. The word kingdom is used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament for God's universal sovereign sway and his redemptive relationship to individuals through Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is the realm of grace where the damage done to us by sin is repaired. You know, not every kingdom is good because not every king is good. Some kings are unjust, incompetent, and wicked. But the kingdom of God is very good news because God himself is perfectly good. And God is not just a good king, but he is the rightful king over our world. So we welcome that kingdom. We pray for that kingdom to come. But what do we make of that claim that God's kingdom is kind of sort of already here, but also something that we should pray will come in the future? Well, with the incarnation, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom has been inaugurated in a way. It's been kicked off. But the world has still fallen. There's no doubting that. And that reminds us that the kingdom of God has not yet fully arrived. It's not yet been completely consummated. It's not yet been visibly established. Some like to compare this to D-Day and V-E Day during World War II. On D-Day, when Allied troops stormed the beaches at Normandy, victory was essentially secure. The war was won that day. In a sense. But then in another sense, it wasn't over yet. It still took another 11 months before VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. 11 more months of fighting, 11 more months of bloodshed before victory could truly be celebrated. 
Likewise, in a sense, God's kingdom has already arrived with Jesus some 2,000 years ago. But in another sense, we are still praying and waiting for the true celebration of God's kingdom when Jesus returns. For the time being, churches and Christians are called to give the world previews of what God's kingdom is like. We do it through spirit-inspired acts of generosity and mercy, justice, forgiveness, love, and reconciliation. The values of the kingdom. But the kingdom won't truly be here until the king himself is here. And that's why we pray that God's kingdom would come. We pray that God himself, the true king, would return. When we pray your kingdom come, we recognize that the world as we know it is not as it should be. To pray your kingdom come is to acknowledge that sin, death, and Satan are still very much around. It's to acknowledge that every earthly kingdom falls short of God's glory. It's to acknowledge that we need a new and better king than any ruler we have on earth right now. It's to acknowledge that we need God's help. Praying your kingdom come reminds us that we cannot fix all of the world's ills. The problems of sin, death, and Satan will not ultimately be resolved until Jesus comes. Thus, we should never fool ourselves into thinking that we can build God's kingdom by our power. That we can achieve utopia if we just make the right decisions, change the right laws, elect the right people. We cannot bring God's kingdom apart from the king himself. And that's why we pray your kingdom come. That's why we wait for his kingdom to come. We work to give our world a taste of God's kingdom right now. We serve our brothers and sisters in Christ as fellow citizens of that kingdom. We love our neighbors and invite them into this kingdom as well, of which the church is simply a tiny glimmer. And we pray. We know. We remember that one day this kingdom will come. Now that brings us to part two of verse 10. Your will be done. In 2015, the Church of England ran a campaign called Just Pray. Hashtag Just Pray. You old people might not get the hashtag part. Around Christmas, the Church of England showed a video of people reciting the Lord's Prayer in movie theaters during the previews. Before the movie would start, you would see a video of people saying the Lord's Prayer. But eventually this video was banned from those movie theaters because, quote, This advertisement, unintentionally or otherwise, could cause offense to those of differing political persuasions as well as to those of differing faiths and indeed of no faith. Now, naturally, a lot of Christians were outraged at this. They were scandalized that the Lord's Prayer could not be shown in a movie theater. Well, believe it or not, I actually agree With the judgment that was laid down. I agree that there are parts of the Lord's Prayer that really are offensive. 
And I think that's especially true of this part of verse 10. Your will be done. Your will be done. This may be one of the most difficult parts of the Lord's Prayer for us to pray. I mean, think about it. When I pray, your will be done, I'm asking that God's will override my will. When you pray, your will be done, you are putting your will on the back burner in order that God's will get priority. You are praying that your will would align with his will rather than the other way around. And in a world that tells us that personal autonomy is the highest good, that is offensive. In a world that trains us to think that our individual rights are more important than anything else, that is scandalous. In a world that treats my desires as sacred, to pray that God's will be done may be seen as absurd, unhealthy, or even dangerous. Because after all, what if the person over you, the one whose will must be done ahead of yours, what if that person expects you to do something that you don't want to do? I think perhaps the best Old Testament illustration of this idea of your will be done may be found in an often ignored story near the end of King David's life. In 1 Chronicles 21, David takes a census of Israel and displeases God in the process. And as a result, God punishes Israel, but he allows David to choose what form that punishment will take. David can choose three years of famine, three years of enemy oppression, or three days of the sword of the Lord. David trusts in God's mercy more than anything else. And so he ultimately elects to fall into the hand of the Lord. It's the way 1 Chronicles 21 verse 13 puts it. To fall into the hand of the Lord. That may be the closest Old Testament example we have of that prayer. Your will be done. David cast himself into God's hands Cast Israel into God's hands, come what may, for better or for worse. And for a New Testament example of this prayer, your will be done, we look to the king who is greater than David. We look to Jesus himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see both Jesus' full humanity and full divinity both on display at the same time. Being fully and authentically human, Jesus has no desire to endure the torture of the cross. What man or woman would look forward to that? But being fully and authentically God, Jesus' greatest desire is to obey the Father. So Jesus prays in Matthew 26, verse 39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Later in verse 42, and again in verse 44, Jesus prays, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And thanks be to God that Jesus did the will of his Father perfectly. 
So again, I'd argue that of the entire Lord's prayer, this phrase, your will be done, might be the hardest part for us to pray. We need to think twice before we say those words. Do we really desire that God's will be done ahead of ours? If so, that may lead us down some frightening roads to some inconvenient conclusions and to some uncomfortable places. Praying that God's will be done may lead us to do some crazy things. We might die to ourselves or take up our crosses or offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. And yet, in a strange way, as bad as that all sounds, there's really nothing better than seeing your will conform to God's will. Because it's what we were created to do. Pastor Tim Keller says, If we cannot say, thy will be done from the bottom of our hearts, we will never know any peace. Obeying God's will isn't always easy, but it's what we were born to do. So may we pray that God's will be done. And finally, that brings us to part three of verse 10. On earth as it is in heaven. You probably know that the Bible paints a breathtakingly wonderful picture of heaven. Heaven is a place where tears are wiped away from eyes, where death and mourning and crying and pain will be no more, where there will be no more hunger or thirst. There will be no more sickness, no more mask mandates. It's not scriptural, but I'm pretty confident about it. No more sin, no more Satan, no more danger, no more fear, no more threats, no lack. Heaven is a place of worship, reunion, reward, and joy. But you know, as good as that all sounds, none of that is even the best part. What really makes heaven great, what makes heaven heaven, and not just a slightly better version of earth, what makes heaven heaven is that God is there. That God is there. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are expressing our desire that God once and for all fulfill his plan of redemption for fallen people in a fallen world. The problem dating back all the way to the Garden of Eden. When we pray this prayer, we are asking that God once again dwell with us. And we with him in his good creation with no more separation of sin. When we pray on earth as it is in heaven, we are echoing the words of Revelation chapter 11 verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. One day earth will look like heaven. We pray for that day to come. We long for that day to come. So last week we learned how and why we can pray to God as our Father. And this week we're reminded that we pray to God as our King. 
And this king is coming. We don't know when. But one day he will be here. And when he comes, his kingdom will come with him once and for all. When he comes, his will will be done once and for all. When he comes, heaven and earth will be one once and for all. We long for this day to come. We pray for this day to come. We have confidence that this day will come. We know that we will have a place in this kingdom because of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. Because he perfectly obeyed the Father's will all the way to the cross. In the meantime, we wait. We don't deny for a second that this world is messed up. We Christians know that better than anybody. And at times we may get burnt out Exhausted, discouraged, and frustrated, looking at just how messed up our world really is. But this prayer keeps us going. This promise keeps us going. We do our best to make this world better. To give a taste of heaven in every single corner of earth that God sends us to. All the while knowing that we can't fix all of it. We just look forward to the arrival of someone who can. So until he returns, we work hard to set the stage. We do our best to point people's eyes to him. We strive to live as citizens of heaven, even as we walk on the earth. We look back with gratitude to the days when our king came once before. And we also look forward with confidence and joy and hope to the day when our king will come again. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And one day that prayer will become reality. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this word today. We can so easily get so caught up in temporary, ultimately superficial concerns, things that have really little to no consequence in our lives, in both the short term and the long term. We so easily get distracted, so easily get stressed out, so easily get anxious and worried and fearful. And so, Lord, I pray that this part of the prayer that you have given us would point our eyes to something far greater, would point our eyes to the promise that you've given us, would point our eyes to the future, would point our eyes to what you've already accomplished through Jesus Christ and what you will one day bring through Jesus Christ. So when we get tired and burn out and exhausted and frustrated and discouraged and want to give up, Lord, remind us of what's coming. Remind us of what we have to look forward to and help us live like this promise is true. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We look forward to being in your kingdom, being in your presence, when your will is done as far as the eye can see, and when earth and heaven come together. Lord, sustain us and preserve us until that day comes for your glory. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.